American Track League idea has been around for a few years now, but it got its first big chance last Sunday. Its first indoor meet was held at Arkansas's Tyson Track Center and got live coverage on ESPN. The league is the brainchild of agent Paul Doyle, and time for full disclosure, I do some writing for the ATL. Uh, Doyle has been working on the idea for a while, but this chance came along when our pandemic hit. ESPN was suddenly in need of programming and offered Doyle four consecutive Sunday afternoons in the three o'clock to five o'clock time slot. With that kind of opportunity, Doyle and his bare bones team had to put together something and do it quickly. It was originally as a, planned as a tour through four cities, but the reality of the situation about the pandemic required keeping it at one venue for safety's sake. How did it go? Well, uh, TV viewers such as myself were frustrated at the same issues that have plagued track broadcasts for decades, especially a lack of field event graphics. But I'd also have to say I have no idea what kind of financial resources the ATL had to work with, so I'm going to take a wait-and-see attitude and hope it gets better over the next three weeks. But, as is so often the case, shortcomings in presentation were made up for by tremendous athletic accomplishment. Ryan Krauser utterly destroyed a 32-year-old world record on his very first throw of 2021 and followed up with another throw beyond the old world record. Grant Holloway tied his own indoor American record in the 60 hurdles, and when he combined his heat and final, it was fastest one-day double in world history for that event. Trayvon Bromel, who was once considered the next U.S. Sprint star, he showed he is on the mend from serious injury by dominating 60 meters and running within 1 100th of a second of his lifetime best. And so all in all, one organization trying to put together an entire series of indoor meets is a rare feat indeed. It's a big logistical problem. In U.S. history, I can think of only one other time something simpler has happened. I'm thinking of the International Track Association that launched in March of 1973. I figure most listeners understand that until the early 80s, all Olympic sport was explicitly amateur and direct payment to athletes was banned, uh, whether it was prize money or appearance money or even uh, sponsorship money. Of course, athletes were surreptitiously paid and had been nearly as long as the amateur code existed, but it involved a level of dishonesty and hypocrisy that many athletes were ready to leave behind. The ITA was a professional tour that signed some of the top athletes of the day. Jim Ryan, Kip Kano, Lee Evans, Bob Beeman, Jerry Lindgren, uh, Dick Fosbury, Bob Segrin, Randy Matson, and more. It, too, was the brainchild of a single man, and that was Mike O'Hara. O'Hara had once been a top athlete who had first-hand experience with amateurism as a member of the USA's 1964 Olympic volleyball team. He also had first-hand experience with wheeling and dealing on the fly. He went to UCLA, and at first he played fraternity volleyball since there was no varsity team at UCLA. But he asked athletic director Wilbert Johns if his Delta Tau Delta team could represent the Bruins at the 1953 NCAA tournament. Uh, Johns said yes, and the frat boys drove to Omaha on their own dime and came back to campus with the championship trophy tied to the top of their car. And volleyball became a varsity sport at UCLA the very next year. That alone wasn't the kind of experience you'd need to create the ITA, though. 
He got it by being a founding member of the American Basketball Association, the late 60s and early 70s rival league that brought us the three-point line, the slam dunk contest, and Dr. J, and helped inspire my favorite bad 70s movie, The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. He was also involved in the World Hockey Association and several professional volleyball organizations. So, gained experience through all of that in putting on a professional sports organization. So after a big media push in the fall of 1972, capitalizing on the Olympics, the first meet was on March 3rd, 1973, in, of all places, Pocatello, Idaho. Really? Well, it was intended as what restaurateurs often call a soft launch, but it turned out big. The crowd was big, 10,480 fans, and the relatively unknown John Radovich broke the world indoor record in the high jump. Of course, it was not officially recognized since it was not, uh, it was done by a professional rather than an amateur, but it was legitimate competition and the highest ever done indoors. The tour went to Los Angeles the next week to a crowd of 12,280 who saw a fantastic mild battle between Kip Kano and Jim Ryan. That was what O'Hara was hoping for on the whole circuit, recapturing some of the magic and rivalries that they made these athletes well known. But the list of stars definitely had a we're getting the band back together feel. Most of them had been stars of the 1968 Olympics, and by 1973 they were beginning to be past their prime. And this was about the only time that Kano and Ryan actually butted heads uh, for a win down the home stretch. On some level, though, the whole thing worked. It lasted for three full seasons and didn't go bust until early 1976. Over that time, it held 51 meets and averaged an attendance of almost 10,000 fans. Uh, it went belly up because it couldn't get a TV contract and it couldn't sign new stars. And that's kind of one of those chicken-the-egg situations. If they'd been able to get new stars, who would have got a TV contract, but no TV contract meant uh, those stars were not going to sign up. And to be honest, many of them could get more money under the table than they could through the ITA. And whereas in the ABA and the WHA and other rival sports leagues, uh, the idea for a lot of the investors was, uh, knowing that the league wasn't going to last forever, they just wanted to have a team that would get uh, absorbed into the NBA or the NHL, and that did happen with several of those teams, such as the Indiana Pacers. What the long-term idea for what was going on with the ITA was a little less clear, but the idea was to push uh, the Olympic sports into open professionalism. And on that level, it worked. Less than seven years after the ITA disappeared, uh, track and field became openly professional uh, with uh, a few hoops to jump through, but it really was openly professional. And what that actually brought around was not as good. There were many reasons that the old indoor track and field circuit that had as many as 15 or 20 major indoor meets all over the country uh, many reasons why those all disappeared. Uh, virtually all of them disappeared. But one of them was that, whereas uh, the cost of bringing in athletes used to be relatively small, then as professionalism came along, it got harder and harder to, for uh, meat promoters to be able to make a profit. They always had only made small profits. It was usually people who liked track that were putting on these meats 
uh, trying to make a small profit. But when the costs of doing business went up, and that, that was one of several reasons why many of them disappeared. Now, but if we want to look back at the ITA and have some 70s fun with it, what were some of the things that made the ITA actually a fun time? Well, one thing they did was uh, an idea that we've been kicking around for a long time, apparently, almost 50 years. Um, this is from a story in Sports Illustrated about the very first meet in 1973. Uh, it says, The crowd appreciated a format that eliminated one annoying aspect of indoor meets, missing a spectacular effort by watching someone uh, watching something else going on simultaneously. So the ITA, the way it did things was that uh, it isolates, isolated each of the events and spotlighted individual performers. A shot putter, for instance, couldn't make his throw if a vaulter was about to try his height. Um, they made that work a little easier uh, by uh, cutting down the time limit on field event attempts. So uh, 30 seconds for shot putters or long jumpers, 45 seconds for high jumpers or pole vaulters. Um, and so that was one thing. Another thing that uh, we've seen in just come up in the last year or two. They used electronic pacer lights around the track to indicate a particular pace or uh, record time that the athlete was trying to beat. And so, of course, the athlete would chase the lights if there was no runner in front of them. Another thing that really made the ITA fun in a way that hadn't been predicted when it was all put together was it did have a rivalry, but it wasn't a rivalry that was expected. It was a rivalry that developed during the ITA. It was in the pole vault. It was between Bob Segrin and Steve Smith. Uh, they were the indoor and outdoor world record holders. Uh, again, not officially, but uh, they were. They had the best legitimate pole vault record, uh, marks on record. And they just absolutely hated each other absolutely hated each other there was a whole article in people magazine yes people magazine had an article about a pole vault rivalry um and so they described it this way um Segrin, bob Segrin, is a devoted family man clean-cut all-american and steve smith is a divorced uh, young hipster with the frizzy hair and attitudes of the counterculture and so they each of them said that the other one was a prima donna, a motor mouth, uh, wanted things to be done exactly their way, uh, not following the rules or the the way that uh, getting the officials to uh, do whatever they wanted the other one to do. And they just absolutely hated each other. And they went back and forth and back and forth. Truth is, uh, Smith usually got the better of Segrin. But then there was another thing that came along. There was probably the ultimate 70s showman in sports. I don't mean in track and field specifically, I mean in all sports. I'm speaking, of course, of Brian Oldfield, the wild man of the shot put. He looked and acted more like a pro wrestler than a thrower. He at times competed in a red, white, and blue stars and stripes speedo. He could dunk a 16-pound shot. 
at six foot five and 280 pounds, he supposedly once said, when God made man, he wanted him to look like me. Oldfield was a good but not great shot putter at Middle Tennessee State University, and he joined the ITA right from the beginning in 1973. He was expected to be little more than cannon fodder for the real throwing stars, Randy Matson and Carl Salb. It turns out Oldfield cruised through college on talent alone while mostly spending his time drinking and smoking and partying way too much and getting into a little bit of trouble. In the ITA, he got serious about training. And in that first year of 1973, he won 14 of 15 meets against some of the best in the world and became the first throw over 72 feet, or 22 meters for those of you who don't use Grandpa Simpson units. Then his performance dipped for a year, not because he stopped working at being great, but because he was working even harder at it. He was experimenting with a new style, the spin, which is what almost all top shot putters use these days. Once he mastered it, he was off the charts, topping out at an even 75 feet, or 22 meters 86, in 1975. Ryan Krauser is threatening the outdoor world record, and he's only beaten that twice. Oldfield also competed in events like the Highland Games and the World's Strongest Man competition, and he had an outsized personality. When dressed up for a night on the town, he wore tight white jeans, open-to-the-waist shirts, and a giant puka shell necklace. And with that giant size, he looked like he walked straight out of a Miami Beach bar in an Elmore Leonard novel. When I grow up, I want to be just like you, Steve Smith, the pole vaulter, said to Oldfield. So strong, nobody cares how stupid you are. Now, there's one other weird piece of uh, memorabilia about the ITA that is my white whale for sports memorabilia collecting. Um, so, uh, back when Mark McGuire was chasing the Major League Baseball home run record, uh, I don't remember when this was, um, but... Uh, in 1998, that's when it was, 1998, I had a rookie card of his from 1984, and I went to a local uh, card and coin shop to uh, see what money I could get with it, and I just started chatting with the owner, and it turns out that that owner had a piece of memorabilia from the ITA. He owned Dave Waddle's jersey. Dave Waddle, uh, the 1972 Olympic 800-meter champion, joined the ITA for 1974 and 75 after he completed his eligibility at Bowling Green State University, which is my alma mater. And so um, the reason this is my white whale is because I don't know what happened to it. That coined and card dealer was a man named uh, Tom Noe. Noe owned that because he was an alumni of and a trustee of Bowling Green State University. Um, why do I not know where that is? It's because Tom Noe is now in prison. Okay, yes, he's in prison. Um, in 2005, he was indicted in a federal investigation on counts of conspiracy, conduit contribution violations, and false statements. He uh, illegally funneled almost $50,000 to, to 
President George W. Bush's re-election campaign, uh, trying to circumvent laws for campaign contributions. And then he was at the center of the Ohio Coingate scandal, which is hard to explain in a short period of time, but believe me, it's weird. And um, so Google that if you want to see it. But all of his assets were auctioned off. I presume that includes Dave Waddle's competition jersey from the ITA. So if I could get into a time machine and go back and only see one meet from the ITA, which one would it be? I think it would be the championship meet from the very first season, 1973. Um, the last meet of the year, that year, was June 6th. It was held at Madison Square Garden. All of the ITA's meets the first year were all indoors, and they were mostly indoors for the entire run. Uh, that one, um, Henry Hines won the long jump with a record jump of 27 feet, 1 inch. Uh, that was an ITA record. Uh, the 60 was won by uh, Madagascaran sprinter, whose last name uh, is Oravalamananananta. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Kip Kano won the mile. Uh, Jim Ryan was supposed to be his big... Uh, big competition. Ryan actually won 11 out of 13 mile races that year, but that day things went belly up for Ryan and he finished last. Um, but then there was other things. There were other things going on. Um, so uh, they had stuff like um, uh, Oldfield often raced in a short sprint against the top women sprinters. So Oldfield actually won a special 30-yard dash against the top women sprinter and then picked her up and carried her around the track uh, over his head, okay? Um, and they asked him uh, about this, and he said, you know, I didn't start out as a pro intending to be a showman, but I've gradually become one, I guess. I enjoy it, and if it weren't for pro track, it never would have happened. Um so I love a lot of the weirdness and the craziness of the 1970s. And the International Track Associ Association was three years of more of that. <laughs>